Welcome to Learning Otherwise. I'm your host, Udi Mandel. Learning Otherwise makes audible the silent learning revolution happening all around the world, offering stories and tools of hope, imagination and possibility in a time of multiple crises. What might learning look like if it were at the service of a diverse ecologies, cultures, economies, spiritualities and life in our planetary home? Learning otherwise is a journey to explore this question. Through conversations with leading practitioners and thinkers reimagining learning and education, this series will make audible the silent revolution happening all around the world in higher education and beyond. These conversations take us to experiments in learning that are emerging from indigenous communities, social and ecological movements and other sites of innovation, including universities, colleges and schools. This series is created through the Ecoversities Alliance, a translocal community of over 100 transformative learning spaces from around the world who have been meeting and collaborating since 2015. The Ecoversities Alliance is a community of learning practitioners committed to reimagining higher education to cultivate human and ecological flourishing in response to the critical challenges of our times. Our first conversation in the series is with Dr. Ku Kahakalau. Ku Kahakalau is a native Hawaiian educator, researcher, cultural practitioner, grassroots activist, songwriter, and expert in Hawaiian language, history, and culture. Since the mid-1990s, Ku has led the Hawaiian-focused education movement, creating the first Hawaiian culture-based school and teacher licensing program. Her latest efforts center around developing AR Ecoversity, a Hawaiian-focused post-secondary program designed to transition Hawaiian youth to happy, culturally grounded, thriving, responsible global citizens able to walk comfortably in multiple worlds. A resident of Hawaii Island, Ku has been active in Hawaiian grassroots struggles for over 35 years, stopping the bombing of the sacred island of Kaho Olawe, fighting geothermal development, and as of late, preventing the desecration of Mauna Kea. In 2017, she was an expert witness on the Mauna Kea contested case hearing and has been teaching classes at Pu'uho Nua Pu'uhuluhuru University on Mauna Kea, sharing her highly successful pedagogy of aloha, which means love and compassion. Ku will share more with us in this conversation about the pedagogy of aloha, which promotes the revitalization of Hawaiian values along with language and culture, hands-on learning in the environment, community sustainability, food sovereignty, and Hawaiian self-determination in education and beyond. In this conversation, Ku describes the origins and principles of pedagogy of aloha and its rootedness in the experiences of native Hawaiians' defiance of Western-imposed educational models, as well as their reconnection with their own values 
and orientations. Koo also engages with the broader question of the contemporary crisis in education, in schools and universities, and of the specific challenges native Hawaiians and indigenous peoples have faced whilst being at the receiving end of a colonial, Western-imposed educational system. The conversation also explores the relevance of the pedagogy of aloha beyond Hawaii and what it means to reconnect to indigeneity wherever we are from. I am especially grateful to have Ku on this launch because of her pioneering work on this education for multiple worlds, on pedagogy of aloha and for launching our Learning Otherwise podcast canoe with aloha. Okay, wonderful. So cool. Is there a is there a, a Hawaiian greeting that you can launch us in this uh, in this podcast canoe? Aloha mai kaku. Aloha Aloha na aku. Aloha na umaku. Aloha na liyo kahonu. Aloha na kupuna. Aloha na makua. Aloha kalehunehu. Aloha. Aloha and greetings to the highest deities all the way down to the itsy bitsy spider that's listening to us. Um, everybody um, that that can be um, within the, the 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 sound of our voice, we want to send them our dearest aloha, love, compassion, kindness from the island of Hawaii. Wonderful! What a what a great launch. So, Ku, maybe to begin with, could you just share a little bit about the work that you do? Oh, I do a lot of work. No, um, I'm an educator. Uh, first and foremost, I'm an educator and I do many different things and I have done many different things over the last 35 plus years as an educator uh, from early childhood to um, high school education, to college education, to community education, uh, everything centering around Hawaiian people first and foremost, because I am Hawaiian and my responsibility is to help my people. Um, and so that's really been been my my focus in these last decades um, to come up with models of education that work in the 21st century for Hawaiians. And the fabulous thing is that these models end up being very ancient models. So, in other words, if we use the the paradigms, if we look look at the approaches of our ancestors to education, um, they don't only work for us Hawaiians, which is great because. So far, the Western system clearly has not worked, um, but they really work for everybody and they align with the latest, greatest paradigms in education coming out of Harvard and Stanford and wherever else. So on that note, could you describe a little bit what is this wonderful thing that you've rediscovered in a way, which is this pedag pedagogy of aloha? Yes, um, I have to say I, I was. we were part of rediscovering but ultimately it was our students who pointed us to the value and the imperative of aloha in the educational process. And so 
basically, uh, pedagogy of aloha is built on a simple formula that that after you know looking at this uh, after after experimenting with it you know doing action research for decades with tens of thousands really of Hawaiian students um, not only myself but a but a group of of other co-researchers and one thing about this research is that everybody even the students are framed as co-researchers we found out that the the progress or or the the formula of this pedagogy of aloha is basically relations. So first you have to build strong relations and I can talk about that more in detail. Next thing is it has to be relevant. So the curriculum has to be relevant. That means it has to be place-based, uh, uh, grounded in, the, in the, the place where the students come from and the things that they can relate to. The next part is that it has to teach responsibility. Um, Western systems, you know, it's about learning for learning's sake, learning to get a PhD, learning to get whatever, a uh, job, you know, kind of thing. And from a Hawaiian perspective, it's never about learning for learning's sake. It's learning so you can use what you have learned to make a better world, to, to impact, you know, your family, your community, your land in a positive way. And when you follow that formula, relations plus relevance plus responsibility, your outcome is going to be rigor and rigor, I I'm, I'm, I'm don't want to necessarily say academic Western rigor in, in, in the way that it's defined there, but into something that's positive, that's strong, that's powerful and impactful. That's what I, I look at as rigor, plus fun. If it's not fun, something went wrong in the formula, you didn't do it right, because education has to be fun. And that's another thing that where we really differ from the Western ways, you know, where we were accused of having too much fun. You know, when they said, oh, you, we walk, when I was, when we were trying this in 1997, let's say in a, in a classroom at a high school, you know, we were accused of, of not teaching the kids. And, that, you know, we said, why would you say that, that we're not teaching? They said, well, every time we go by your classroom, your students are laughing. And that was our problem, you know, and I'm going like, oh my gosh, you know, if having fun in education and while learning is a problem, I really don't want to have anything to do with a system that, that is anti-fun and anti-laughter. So I think we can explore a bit more in detail some of the things that you mentioned, the, the relational and the place-based and, uh, and the relevance. Um, but maybe before we do that, I know as an educator, long-standing educator with many decades of experience, both of, of the Western system and rediscovering this uh, ancient system too, you must have a very particular reading of the contemporary crisis in, in education, more broadly and, and maybe more specifically in higher education. Do you want to share some of that with us? And, and maybe specifically how, how it's impacted in, uh, your own community there in, in Hawaii? Yeah, so just a very brief history lesson because most people really don't know anything about Hawaii. Um, and even in Hawaii, there's very little known about uh, our advancement in, in education. So when the first Westerners come to Hawaii in 1778, they're blown away by the levels of excellence that they see in everything that our ancestors made. We don't have art, so we don't make anything that just hangs on the wall or stands around for nothing kind of thing. But, but everything that we create is art, gets, is taken to a level where it is looked at as a work of art. 
So whether we make a cape out of feathers, millions of feathers, you know, and, and so exquisite that nobody has seen anything more beautiful in the entire world, or whether we beat our bark cloth so fine that it is a watermark and that no, nowhere else in the world do we get to that standard. So first of all, so number one, extremely high standards set by our ancestors right from the very get-go. Then we have the introduction of Western education in the 1830s. And within 50 years, we are among the highest literate people in the world. So we have a world-class by 1890s, almost everybody in Hawaii, both sexes, which is very unusual also at that time, right? We have a, we have a public school system for all classes and both sexes. Everybody can read, everybody can write. People are reading Shakespeare in Hawaiian. You know, uh, people are doing higher level math, you know, geography, topography. I mean, things that very few people in the world at that time know our, our general population, not just a few people, but our general population knows. Um, and then we have the overthrow, uh, the invasion of Hawaii by the U.S. military and uh, the uh, uh, outlawing of Hawaiian language because it, it, it is kind of prior to that a Western system in terms of the subject areas being generally, you know, math, science, a language art. So it, 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 it becomes Western, but it's done in the medium of Hawaiian language and many things Hawaiian are integrated to, and it's taught by Hawaiian teachers. After the, the invasion and the overthrow of, the, of our monarchy, constitutional monarchy, the language is outlawed. So we cannot speak the language anymore to teach. And from 1906, there's an overt Americanization process where the entire curriculum is all about America and nothing about Hawaii. So we learn Yankee Doodle Dandy songs. We learn the Constitution. We learn, you know, the, the, the history of America, everything about America, nothing about Hawaii. And then within 70 years or so, we are the most under and uneducated population in Hawaii. So being from world class, you know, within 70 years of Americanization and Westernization through the system, public school system, we become the most under and uneducated because it's not in our language and it has nothing to do with us. And so that's where we have been on the bottom of the educational ladder uh, for the last, you know, 100 years, 100 plus years. And it's not because we are not smart. We know that now. You know, it's clear that it's not we are not the problem. We always say we're the evidence, not the crime kind of thing. And in this case, the crime has been a Western system imposed upon us that has not worked for us whatsoever. And I think at this point in time, when we look globally, it really hasn't worked for anybody else either. But I can only speak for us, you know, emphatically, even though certainly speaking for other indigenous peoples, I don't know of one place where, where it has worked. So I would say we can generalize that much for sure. Um, and so we've been in this crisis, you know, of of um, just like at this one high school um, where high, 70 percent of the students are Hawaiian, only nine percent are passing these tests, these standardized tests that they're giving them in language arts and only two percent in math. I mean, <laughs> a test that only nine percent or two percent pass. It cannot be the students. It has to be the test, right? I mean, it's impossible for the problem to be the students. You know, this is a test that's completely not aligned with anything that they've learned and basically shows what they don't know. Rather than giving these students opportunities 
to show what they do know because it's not like our students don't know anything it's that what is tested is not and how it is tested it doesn't work and that's the kind of answer the question mm, or no no that's that's incredibly rich detailed history that shows a lot about crisis specifically in education and i'm wondering you, you commented in <clears throat> talking about this the education system as a whole also beyond hawaii and i'm wondering from your experience in the place where you are and the things that you've developed what do you have a reading around the connection of these kinds of crises in education to other crises beyond education which are happening in the world today in terms of social and ecological and so forth well i believe that they are systemic problems you know that the systems are the problems they in Throughout, there have always been good teachers, there have been well-meaning teachers, and there still are in the public school system, you know, teachers are really good. It's the systems that are the problem. Systems that have been created or almost created themselves. It's, it's a really uh, interesting phenomenon when you look at these systems and how they became, because nobody sat down and said, we're going to make this system that screws up everybody, right? I mean, I don't think it was, <laughs> it was that way. But somehow these systems have a way of creating themselves um, with the primary purpose of sustaining themselves. And so they, the systems become, as they grow, more and more resistant to change, more and more um, just stuck in these very old ways of thinking, ways of doing things that don't adjust with the times and that just hang on at all costs to something that's clearly not working. And I think that's kind of, it's a greater global crisis that we're hanging on to blankety blank that's clearly not working, you know, and whether that is the way we produce stuff, right? We clearly can see that, that the, the way we use resources and all the rubbish that we create by making, wrapping everything 50,000 times or, you know, uh, making it just so hard to open, you know, that you, you, you know, this is for adults now, you need a, uh, whatever wedges and, 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 and uh, chainsaws to open a simple bag. I mean, it's the, all that over, you know, that, that is all something that the systems have created. I don't think, as I said, that people sat down and said, we're going to make this extremely complicated or we're going to pollute the world with these things. But it's kind of uh, grown and then it just stuck there in terms of wanting to perpetuate itself and wanting to continue, continue itself. And I think that's really the main problem is that there's too many systems in place um, that are just completely resistant to change and rather go down with the ship, you know, type of thing, rather self-destruct than say, oh, why don't we change? Why don't we adjust to what research shows us? You know, and I think that whole emphasis on which our which our ancestors were so famous for what I call action research. You can go and you know the idea of you, you see something is working and if it's not working, you have this common sense to say, okay, let's look at something else. Let's look at a different way. Let's figure out how we can make this better, how we can do it more positively and, and make sure that the impact is a positive impact. So it, in this more systemic reading of these, these crises and challenges in higher education and then connecting that to your inquiries and your research and your discoveries, what would you say having some broad patterns you've identified of places where change is really needed. So what, what is the, the kind of vision of transformation that you think is, is needed 
systemically um, to bring about you know the kind of world that that we want to to be in. Well, I would say first uh, production, you know, production and and use of resources. You know, all of that needs to be reevaluated. You know, and uh, uh, bringing things back to local. You know, um, from the very beginning of contact here in Hawaii, we changed from being 100% self-sustaining. Um, you know, to uh, and having almost the same population, maybe a few hundred thousand more, but insignificant really in terms of how many more people there were then than there are now. Um, and 100% sufficient as far as both food and everything else that we needed, like building materials, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then immediately focusing on export economy. You know, in our case, it was sugar and pineapple, and now it's macadamia nuts and papaya or who knows what, you know, but a coffee. Um, so it's always been, you know, these export, in, instead of growing things where you are <laughs> and keeping things there, you know, it's been this whole global economy, you know, shipping things all around from here to there and everywhere um, that takes so much resources and that really makes everybody dependent um, on somebody else kind of thing. And um, it's not a good interdependency. I do believe in in uh, relations, right? Relations <laughs> in, in the, our pedagogy is the most important part, but dependency is a different thing, you know? And when we look at um, this concept of like, for example, here in Hawaii on the island of Oahu, if the ships would stop coming for whatever reason, if there was a crisis in California and our freighters couldn't come, we would only have food for three days. Now, 800,000 people food for three days that could get ugly really, really fast. And to be in such a volatile and um, tenuous and scary, you know, situation, and we're in that situation 24-7. This is not just maybe one time if nobody comes. No, this is all the time. We live in that kind of a reality that we only have food in on the specific island for three days. Our island may be a little bit longer, but also not enough to sustain the people that live on our island when we have a 12-month growing season, the most fertile, you know, soil, volcanic soil, uh, lots of rain, you know, um, so that there's absolutely no reason why we cannot be 100% self-sustaining as far as food is concerned and having only, you know, truffles or whatever that may not grow, strawberries, certain things don't grow because of our climate, you know, if you want those, you know, import, export, that's fine. But the majority of the things that we eat, we should be growing it right here on our islands. But by now, the cost of land is so high that nobody can farm, even if they had the land and if they wanted to, because uh, you know it, it, the, the the land is just you know too too expensive. Mm -hmm. So I think that part that is the issue for me is this dependency, and here. We feel it especially, right? Because we are so isolated. We're the most isolated spot, 2,000 miles. It's the shortest to our next neighbor is 2,000 miles, you know. And much of our food comes from 5,000 miles and 7,000 miles away. So um, when, you, when you are on an island, you can really see this dependency. But we are just a microcosm. I think if you, if you looked at it from a larger global perspective, the rest of the world is also super, super dependent on this whole globalization of resources, um, just that it's more overt <laughs> here, you know, um, 
I think it's it, it, we can see it better. And how how do you then link this really important point you raised about self sufficiency and localization, connecting that to the education system, uh, whether schooling or, or higher education? What what do you see the relationships? So obviously we have to reteach and reteach not so much the mechanics of growing food, even though that's an important part too. The more important and more difficult piece, the challenging piece is the shift of the mindset. Because it it wasn't only that uh, we ended up or we now exporting most of our the things that we grow. The Western education system also was able to plant this idea in our head that growing food is beneath us, that growing food is not something that modern, civilized, educated people do, you know? And, um, and, and we have these stereotypes, you know, that um, Filipino people or Samoan people, you know, they grow food, you know, because they're not quite where, you know, and, which is all just total BS. But the concept is that our people, as a people, and I speak for Native Hawaiians now, but I think it would also be true for local Japanese and local, local Chinese and, and other local uh, whites, um, that somehow we just not, that it's just not cool, that it's just not educated and whatever to grow our own food, you know, that it, uh, it's better to, to work in an office all day long and then buy really, you know, stuff that was spent on a boat for, <laughs> for weeks to get to us to eat rather than growing our own fresh vegetables. So I think the mind sh shifting the mindset is just as important or has to be an important part of um, this, this, this transformation along with specifically knowing, learning how to grow food, you know, that's one thing. But, and then most importantly is actual access to land. You know, we are, um, we have, we're the second highest uh, state and state is on in quotes um, of houseless. We call them houseless population because Hawaii is their home, so they, they have a home, but they're houseless. And the majority of them are Native Hawaiians' families, you know. And this way that in in the, in the whole U.S. now, you know, we have the, the second largest percentage, and that's because the and these are what we call working houseless. So they have jobs, but they can't afford. A place in order to rent a two-bedroom apartment in Honolulu, you have to work 114 hours a week. 114 hours a week to, to afford a simple two-bedroom apartment. You know, I mean, that, that's unrealistic. <laughs> no matter which way you cut it. So um, the issue is that we also need to have the land to live on because just saying, "Oh yeah, I want to do this," and "Oh, I know how to do it," but if I have no access to places where I can actually grow food, for example, then, then that's another issue. We do have a lot of land, but it's all in these very large land trusts. And then also, obviously, the U.S. federal government occupies large, large portions of our land for the military, and then the state as well that uses our land, you know, without any compensation. So other than the, the houselessness and some of the issues that you've touched on about um, dependency on imports and um, issue of land and so on. Uh, what would you say uh, maybe a, a few other major, uh, there's probably a list of them, but the more important significant 
kind of challenges facing Hawaii right now? Well, as I said, I, I'm not so much concerned necessarily of what faces Hawaii as I'm as I am about what faces our indigenous people, because um, as the model of our uh, social enterprise, Kuakanaka State, where native people thrive, everybody benefits. We are um, the largest um, ethnic population, major ethnic population. We don't have a majority in Hawaii, which is very unusual. You know, most states have, have either, you know, a certain ethnic group as a majority. We don't have a majority per se, but certainly Hawaiians are up there and the fastest growing ethnic population. So to me, when we can shift the the realities as they pertain to Hawaiians now, we will be able to affect everybody. So besides that concept of reawakening our um, innate relation to the land, our love for the land, and we call that aloha aina. Aina means land, that which feeds us. Um, so by growing that aloha aina part through the things that I've mentioned, um, it's a reconnection also to our native language and our culture. You know, our, our language, as I said, was banned in, 19, in 1896 um, in, the public school, in the public sphere anywhere, including the school system. And so while my grandfather, for example, was raised as a native speaker, my parents' generation didn't know any, anything. And we had to go back to school to study now we have my daughters both speak. My grandson is being raised in the language of bilingually. So, but but we are an exception as a family to have it back in our family the way we do. The majority of Hawaiians still are completely disconnected to their language, therefore don't know the way our kupuna thought, our ancestors thought, and the way they did things because that's contained in so many ways in the language, in the proverbs, in the chants, in the songs of old, in the stories of old. Um, so a reconnection to the language and then also a reconnection to the traditional culture and our values. I think those are all essential. And so as we are cultivating and growing air education with Aloha Ecoversity, you know, those are really important components that every student has to buy into and every student has to engage in. And if they're not interested in it, then we're not the right place for them. You know, we're not saying you have to be Hawaiian, you have to know your culture. We can't force anybody to know their culture, but we are inviting you to say, if you want to be part of these programs, you have to engage in land stewardship, you know, being out there, learning from the land, growing your own food. All of that is part of our program, regardless of what you eventually, if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a pipe fitter or a, a seaman, merchant marine, you know, it doesn't matter, but you still got to know those things. And, um, Likewise, for your language and your culture, you want to be part of this program. You have to learn and 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 grow your knowledge of of traditional practices and values, etc. Along with learning, increasing your ability to speak Hawaiian. So, while we're talking about these components of uh, education with Aloha or pedagogy of Aloha. Uh, do you want to go a little more depth in any of those ones that you mentioned, whether the the relational or the the place based, and maybe just give some um, some examples from how that manifests itself? Sure. Um, so first of all, for, foremost, I have to say that the relation building has to be the primary step, the first step. You cannot give them relevant curriculum and have no relation with your with your students and expect it to work. So the first thing that you have to do is you have to 
invest time and in education time is a very you know important factor and most people will say well i don't have time for that and i need to get through my curriculum but if you don't spend that time in the relation building the rest of it is not going to work so might as well put the time in because from then on once you have that and so relationship building is the students among one another so that they are a community of learners and it's not oh i i can't show you my paper i can't help you because that's going to affect my grade or i want to get an a i want to be you know if there's only five a's i want to be one all of that you know so that there's none of that kind of competition but really a, a community of learners that learn together that help each other that are peer teachers peer learners at the same time so that part then there's the relation between the students and the teacher who is not the sage on the stage anymore right kind of thing so we got to dismantle that sage and we've got to become co-learners and co-researchers with our students we got to become this guide on the side that is there to to support them and and makes them feel like their value that, that somebody cares about them one of the things that most whether it's in from elementary all the way to higher education you know if you ask students today does your teacher care about you i would say the majority would say no you know my teacher doesn't even know me they, they you know and, and that part was identified by our students all the way from kindergarten to adults as the primary component of their success in education was the feeling inside of them that their teacher personally cared for them that the teacher wanted the best for them that the teacher was there to support them that the teacher had this affinity for them that was we didn't come up with that this was clearly identified by our students as the most valuable piece in the educational project was this this aloha is what we call it you know between student and teacher but this relations is not only just students to students teacher student it's also relation to the land it's also relation to the spiritual world and that's where in western education you know they get a big woo let's not go there you know but if it's really about educating the whole child which they've been talking about for decades right if it's about that then there also needs to be a spiritual component that doesn't mean teaching religion because this is not about religion this is about um you know growing the understanding that that in order to thrive you have to have also a spiritual life and it's up we, we don't tell them what it is we get we, we offer them things to do but the concept that you are not it right it's like that that shirt it's all about me you know kind of thing it's not about you you know hello um and that there is this uh, divine force whatever and we don't we don't go into at all what what that is but that it's not just man alone that that is in this whole <laughs> in this whole picture that there is a divine guidance that there is a spiritual force that that balances things out um and however you want to tap that you know through various religions or, or practices that's totally up to you but that but even the understanding that you have to have relations with that part as well you know so so it it's it is complex especially when you're trying to do it within a western school system where you know there's the separation of church and state and blah 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 so we are lucky that we have the word protocol and we, and everything that we do that's along those lines so for example you know like this morning before we started this podcast 
my husband and I, we do our protocol, um, which is we ask the ancestors for guidance. We ask them for power. We ask them for strength. We ask them for um, uh, ikipapalua, um, in, internal like uh, sensitivity to, to things that we might not otherwise see, you know, kind of intuition, that, that kind of thing. Um, and we ask these things every day, you know, and we, ask, we have the students doing those kind of things every day. Before we enter a river, we ask the river for permission, but we also ask the spiritual world to protect us while we're in that river. It's that kind of practices, right? And we just call them protocol in Hawaiian. That way we get away from the issue of spirituality or religion, but it's an important factor. So as far as relation, it's all those pieces. It's not just teacher-student relations, which when you talk relations, usually that's all that comes to mind, right? Uh, but there's so much more when it comes to relations. And then, you know, as we said, the, re the relevance part, it really has to connect to the students' lives, no matter what we teach. And everything that we teach starts in Hawaii. So, so the place where you are from, you know, that is the starting point of all learning. So we don't start with geography of in the U.S. or whatever, or history or whatever of the U.S., or this and that of the nothing. We start with everything math, Hawaiian math, Hawaiian geography, Hawaiian social studies, Hawaiian sports, you know, Hawaiian whatever. We start in Hawaii and then we move out in concentric circles all the way to the end of the world if we want to. You know, it's not about being Hawaii-centric and staying there. It's starting out as Hawaii-centric so that students can make a connection to the content because they, they, they can see it, they can smell it, they can, you know, touch it, whatever, uh, hear it, and then moving outward. So that's, the, that's a really important part. And then I cannot emphasis, emphasize the importance of responsibility enough because that's not taught at all in the Western system. There's no teaching of responsibility to the things that you were taught to apply those things. You know, there's nothing there. It's the, 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 the outcome is you get a piece of paper and you pass your test, whatever, you got it, have a nice life. You know, but zero emphasis on, well, now you know these things, you know, now you need to apply them. And it's not optional. Application is not optional. So we have numerous proverbs that speak to that. So they say, for example, um, being old enough to carry a younger sibling on your back. Well, Depending on your physical size, you could be eight, you could be 12, you know, depending when you can carry your little brother or sister or another young child on the back. Well, when you were able to actually physically do that, nobody gave you a certificate or an A or a star. You know, what did you get? You had the responsibility from a.m. to p.m. from in the morning when you left the house with that younger sibling on your back. Throughout the day until you came back with that younger sibling on your back in good health, you know, not crying, not hungry, not dirty, not everything. That was, imagine, at 10 years old, full responsibility for another human being, um, and that was how it was. You know, that, that wasn't optional. You know, you, you couldn't say, well, I'm too young, you know, only 10 years old. I can't, that we expect, if you could do it physically, then you also immediately got the responsibility to um, to take to, to to perform that task at an extremely high level, you know. So it didn't count if the if the child little child that came back was hungry or dirty or hurt, 
you know, that, that, but still alive, you know, that wasn't good enough. You know what I'm saying? So the standard with the responsibility is not just, oh, yeah, take care of the kid. Just so long he comes back alive, you're good. No, that kid had to be in top shape and, and all his needs or her needs met. So I, I think that part we, we just have completely factored out. I don't know if it ever was in, in Western education per se as, a, as an actual component of importance. I, can't, I don't know, but for sure, it's not there now. Um, and I think it's, it's crucial, especially talking about the eco-versities movement, you know, this concept of that all of us, Kako in Hawaii means everybody included, um, is responsible to take care of this earth, right? If we don't, if we, our, if this, our generation was part of the guys who screwed it up, but if this next generations and ours, because we're at the tail end of that, right, um, is not going to say and, and, and take on that responsibility and say, hey, I personally have a responsibility to create less rubbish, you know, to clean up the stuff that's been screwed up by other people, to help in in locally and globally to, to, to deal with all of these issues that were created by previous generations who felt they had no responsibility to the earth, you know, to the planet, to the environment kind of thing. Um, we're going to go down, you know, we're going to go down with this whole, uh, that the earth will not be able to sustain itself if each of us doesn't understand our personal, individual, and of course collective also, but it has, to, it has to be a personal, individual responsibility to take care of the earth. And so this responsibility factor cannot be overemphasized. And then, as I said, rigor is going to be automatic. That's what everybody wants to start with rigor, you know. <laughs> That's always the first thing. In the formula, whatever, Western formulas, rigor. Well, can't start with the rigor. That's going to be a byproduct at the end, right? And then, as I said, I, I also can't emphasize fun enough because education should be fun. Um, I think from, you know, when you look at even the early Greeks and whatever, I think as they were doing their discussions, you know, as they were doing their debates, they were having fun. And when you look at Arab, you know, and the things that they, they were having fun. You know, when you look at some of these uh, in, uh, uh, cultures, you know, in the, in the past that were, that were involved in this very uh, high-level education, they were having fun. You know, I mean, this was this was challenging, but in a fun way kind of thing, you know. And I think we got to get back to looking at education as an opportunity to have fun and to have fun um, and creating up, um, situations and, and uh, activities or whatever it is where people really can enjoy themselves and making it something that is enjoyable again, rather than arduous and... Blah blah blah. Yeah. Well, I mean that's that's really wonderful because really detailed exposition of the educational aloha and its components. And given that, as you said, this has grown and been rediscovered from the ground up in in Hawaii and in relation to uh, Native Hawaiians and Native Hawaiian culture. Uh, and yet, it seems there's many resonances beyond beyond this particular community. And I'm wondering if you could speak about the relevance of this kind of work uh, beyond, beyond this, this community. Yeah. So we've grown, you know, this movement um, has always been linked to other 
first and foremost indigenous education movements in other parts of the world. You know, um, Native Americans, first people in Canada, um, have struggled, you know, within this Western system that hasn't fit at all into their ways um, and uh, ha have chosen many, those who have chosen to look at their traditional ways and, and bringing those back again and growing their language and growing their culture and growing these traditional practices, which means also then learning in the environment, right? So that's those kind of things rather than in the classroom, learning in the environment. They do a lot of camps, you know, where students are out there and that they're learning hands-on how to survive in nature, how to live with nature, right? It's, it's not against nature, it's with nature kind of things. Um, so we've been part of this global international um, indigenous education movement uh, from the very beginning. Um, all of these movements um, very much aligned with, with political movements, you know, with the um, uh, well, AIM, you know, the American, that whole uh, um, American Indian resistance against um, Americanization or whatever, Westernization, whatever you want to call it. Um, we, uh, in other places, in, in, in the Maoris, you know, their resistance against the, the, the Westernization of, of their, of their education system and their lives, you know. So this has been, um, the Samis in Norway. So this has been really, we've been working, um, we have a, an indigenous, world indigenous education conference every four years, you know, where we get together and we've been doing that for decades now, you know, where we share what we're learning and what we're doing. So in that way, it's connected certainly very much to the indigenous education movement internationally, but I would say also to the, as far as renaissance or revitalization, cultural, uh, and political, um, in terms of land, land management systems and all of those kind of things. It's been a parallel movement or or we are part of the larger movement, we have always have been. And then I think indirectly now, especially now in the last years since we've been part of the ecoversities movement as well, you know, really also part of a larger international movement that is very environmentally focused and environmentally conscious and really wants to make a difference and sees the issues um, that are getting more and more evident uh, in terms of the pollution of, of our oceans, you know, of our land, and the need to make radical changes. And I think we are part of that movement, that larger movement, whatever you want to call it. Um, we are part of that as well. A, through the Ecoversities movement, but B, also through, um, uh, for example, in 2017, one of our canoes sailed around the world with this message of take care of the world, i.e. also take care of the oceans. And, you know, we now in Hawaii, I mean, we have beaches where we just can't even go there anymore because we clean it up, we turn around, and it's full of rubbish again. And none of that rubbish comes from us. This all comes from somewhere else. We've never had that before, you know, not at that level of pollution. So um, I think we're, we're part of that movement as well. You mentioned the, the tagline for the Kua Kanaka um, organization, which you, which you, you founded a part of, but the, 
um, that when native Hawaiians or when natives thrive, everyone benefits. Could you just explain what that means a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, as, as a native people and a minority, you know, in, even though ethnically we are relatively large, but we're a minority in terms of having something to say, um, people are always afraid. You know, people are afraid of minorities and afraid of us getting more power and them getting less power. You know, if the power shifts towards us, that means it's shifted away from them. And that kind of a mindset is not a good mindset. You know, it's not good for us for sure um, to be to to be in a state of uh, fear, right? In a state of um, protecting. I gotta protect my old stuff because if if they get too much, then I have less. You know, that that concept of of um, we call it hooky hooky pulling. You know, <laughs> that, that kind of pull. And and so I I really can't even remember when when we when we started talking about this, but we said let's shift that. Let, let's, let's look at it from a different perspective. Right now, Native Hawaiians, as I said, are not just the un, most under and uneducated ethnic population. We are also the highest population in the prisons. We're the highest population on welfare. We're the highest population on drugs. We're the highest population who abuses alcohol. We're the highest blah, 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 blah. So all of that costs the taxpayers money, right? We're in the jails. They, you know how much it costs a prisoner versus some to educate a child. I mean, you know what I mean? It, it's ridiculous, right? So the people of Hawaii, all of us, you know, uh, who are paying taxes have to pay for our problems, you know, for our inability to, to thrive in our homeland kind of thing, right? Versus when we thrive, you know, then obviously these things will be eliminated or dramatically reduced, you know? And so just from a financial economic perspective, when natives thrive, everyone benefits is certainly correct. You know, I mean, just from an economic perspective, your taxes right now go to pay for our problems that we are the evidence of, as I mentioned earlier, but not the crime. Um, now, if we can shift that, there's going to be, you know, your money, <laughs> you get more of your own money and you can be spent for more positive things than, than <laughs> you know, feeding us in prison kind of thing, right? Or getting us off drugs or whatever it is. So that's one thing. But I think it's also that around the world, people um, value and are interested and uh, want to know more about our native culture. You know, this concept of aloha, I think, is so, so powerful. We have been able to take this concept of love agape, whatever you want to call it. I mean, there's many words for it, you know, compassion, caring, um, that pretty much every world religion looks at as a major, major positive factor for just health, mental health, social health, whatever, physical health. We have been able to take this concept to a whole nother level. And this is my theory. Um, for all it's worth, <laughs> can't cite anybody on this, but this is my thing. Because we did not have an other. Everybody else in the world has an other. Around the, around the river bend, over the mountain, you know, <laughs> the next valley over, there's somebody 
that is just a little bit less than us, right? Uh, whoever it is, you know, but they're whatever, whatever, but just a little bit less than us, and sometimes a lot less than us, right? But for us, we were 2,000 miles minimally, as I said, 4,000, 5,000, 7,000 miles away from everybody. We have eight major islands. We had almost a million people, but all of us are related. When we look at our cosmogonic genealogies, we, are, we don't just have one common ancestor as a people, but we're also related to the stars and the moon and the sky and the earth. You know, so we are a family. And you can have a big problem with your sister or your brother. You know, I mean, it's, it's not like everybody gets along all the time in the family, but you're not less than. You might be stupid, right? You might say to your sister, you're stupid, but you would never say that he or she's less than in the way that other is perceived, you know, in, in other places. And so when you never have this concept that people can be less than you, you know, you're able, I think, to develop this concept of love and care to a different level. Um, and that's what we can bring to the world uh, because we had, you know, 2,000 years essentially of being within a family, you know, where everybody ultimately is related. And we all know, you know, genealogies, like some of us, my husband can go 70 generations back, verbally, you know, on his genealogy. So that, you know, just imagine how many people he's related to that he knows about, you know, kind of thing. Um, so um, so as, a, as Native Hawaiians, because we have this cosmogonic genealogy that, that comes from one, and we all come from this one common ancestor, um, we have always functioned as an extended family to a certain extent and don't have this concept of other. And so I think that has given us the opportunity to develop this concept of aloha, as I said, to an extremely high level. And that is something that we can offer the world. And that is something that people come here wanting to learn more about and, um, and want to connect to, want to understand. And I think so in that way as well, you know, if, if we thrive, then we can exhibit that aloha a lot more than when we look at you coming with your, you know, fancy clothes, fancy car, fancy this, fancy that, and we are living on the streets. You know, it's hard for us to show you aloha when um, we have, we have at first of all, nothing to offer, right? We are very hospitable. If you're on the street, you can't even tell somebody, come, inside, come and eat something, you know, because you have nothing to offer. So by us thriving, we can get back to these traditional practices of exhibiting this aloha and sharing this aloha and teaching by by doing what learns, right? By you experiencing this aloha and many people that come to Hawaii and, and, and experience that aloha from Native people, you know, that are able to go into Native communities and Native families. I mean, they are transformed, you know, because they've never seen that kind of, of relations among family, let's say, for example. Um, so this is something that we can offer as well. And so it's, and, and also when natives thrive, everybody benefits. I don't think that only applies to Native Hawaiians specifically. I think the same thing can be said for Native Americans, you know, First Nations people, uh, Aboriginal people in Australia, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, that's, that's pretty beautiful. And I love, I love your in-depth, Philosophical exploration of, of aloha itself as this very beautiful gift to, to humanity as well, coming from that place and the reasons for that. 
And I, I thought one, one other thing too, in terms of that, the thriving of natives, native culture and, and everyone else thriving in, in as much as if you look at the major ecological crisis points around the world today in terms of pipelines and deforestation and mining and so forth, it's, it's very often native people that are at the front line of taking care of land, showing, as you said, this deep relationship and, uh, and connection to place and to nature and another way of uh, relating to that and how within the ecological movement increasingly people are saying, yes, you need to support the, the native people to take care of, of place as well. So there's another, another yeah. way in which the, the hum humanities or the ecosystemic thriving you know, comes from the, the support and the thriving of, of people in, in their place as well. Yeah. One other um, thing I wanted to, to talk to you about, have your, your take on is, well, it's a twofold question. One is this, this sense of, that you, you also mentioned before about the pedagogy of Aloha and the education they've been engaging with, preparing people to walk in multiple worlds. Uh, which I think is a fantastic and a very profound uh, insight and wisdom that I've, I've I've heard from you before. I've heard from other uh, indigenous and First Nations people as well. And I, I was always in, in the journey that we did of connecting with multiple places that were emerging from indigenous communities and others. It was always a display of a wonderful wisdom, the people who managed to do that. And I, I'm just wondering if you could describe a little bit more what what that means for you, this ability to walk in, in multiple worlds? Um, well, I think first and foremost, in, in Hawaii, we have um, only a handful of what we call pure-blooded Hawaiians, you know, that don't have another, another ethnic group. So for many of us um, already, uh, just uh, blood-wise or whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, we have multiple ethnicities um, within us, you know, as far as um, that is concerned, and to understand, because because one thing that that can happen very easily is that you become too Hawaiian centric. You know, you become too only Hawaiian is right and everybody else is wrong. Um, <coughs> we are the best. Everybody has this less than blah blah blah. You know, switching it out and becoming sort of racist, you know what I mean? Um, and so I think that's where one, where it's really important to understand that, yes, we have these awesome things that we are so proud of, you know, that we're learning about and that we totally um, revere in terms of the mind-blowing uh, knowledge of our ancestors kind of things. But that doesn't mean that other people don't have anything to offer and that we can learn from other places as well. We have proverbs that says one can learn from many sources. You know, not all knowledge is taught in one school, is what the proverb says literally. And so, first and foremost, to open ourselves up to that, that you can learn from many sources, which, as I said, is based on our traditional proverbs already. Um, and so that's that's I think one thing that that's really important, so that we don't become too ethnocentric or racist or whatever, however, you know, however far you want to take that. Um, the other part is that this is the 21st century and that there are 21st century skills, you know, that we need to have 
in order to function. You know, let's look at technology, for example, right? Um, our ancestors were highly technological with the things that they did have. And when new technology was introduced through the Western, you know, um, people who came, uh, we were one of the first. We had electricity at our palace before the White House and flush toilets and things like that before any place in America. So we were, you know, very advanced at uh, during the, eight, let's, let's say, um, 1880s, you know, we had all of those things already where most people else in the world didn't have that. So then today, again, to embrace technology also, um, not, not so much um, to to uh, limit us and 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 uh, consume what what Western uh, the technology gives to us, right? But really to become producers of our own education using Western technology. Um, so we want to use modern things, you know, uh, which are you know uh, another world, right? Because that that kind of technology would wouldn't be in the traditional Hawaiian world. Uh, but we're using it not as in only and not primarily to consume it, but to use it to create, uh, create things about ourselves that we can then pass on to the next generation through modern technology, you know, rather than, um, you know, just traditional uh, chant form, let's say, for example. So in that way, it's really, really important um, that we are able to to have our foot in multiple worlds, you know, that we can be comfortable with going outside into the world and feeling equal to everybody else. Um, because we also have those skills that I would call 21st century skills. Uh, they're not necessarily Western, you know, they're just 21st century skills. And so I, again, for AI Ecoversity, um, having that 21st century skill set is a very, very important part so that we don't feel less than um, because we, we, we don't know how to, you know, use WhatsApp or whatever, whatever, you know, kind of, um, some of those, those kind of modern things and, and mm -hmm. are part of the discussions on a global level. Mm -hmm. the, the second part of that question, I, I wondered what your, your take on this was that in, in talking to some other First Nations people, um, and, and other indigenous people in other parts of, of the world too, I, I've heard the, the concept in relation to people who are not from those indigenous places, uh, don't have that heritage to draw on, but people also talk about re-indigenizing yourself. And I, I was wondering if you, do you have any sense of that for people who do not come from a you know, traditionally recognized indigenous culture or community and so forth, but feel an affinity to the kinds of things and processes that you're talking about, what what does what does this mean for them? Hmm. Well, the sting song "Rehumanize Yourself" comes to mind over here. I think it's more about rehumanizing, um, you know, uh, because the uh, many places in the Western world have gone away from that from that part. Um, we believe that every person is indigenous to some place, you know, uh, but maybe the ancestors left a long time ago. And maybe even if they if they are still where they were, that things have through the industrialization, you know, they have moved far away. Like let's look at Europe, you know, for example, you know, far away from these indigenous practices that weren't really um, that long ago. 
so like my mother is pure German, so I, I uh, lived for a while with my German grandmother. And I want to say she was an indigenous German person as far as her values were concerned. And those were very strong, powerful, positive values. Like she would never throw away anything outside. You know what I mean? Like to throw away, you know what I mean? Like any, I mean, um, she... She had a blueberry patches. She took in the, in the forest. You know, she knew where to go. She knew her her land. You know, she she grew her own food. Um, she she had her own animals. You know, all of those kind of things. Um, that's that's as pretty and indigenous. She made her own things. You know, that's as indigenous as it gets. You know, uh, she knew her songs from her from her place. You know that that um the area that whatever, you know, kind of thing. She knew lots of proverbs for sure, you know, um, that were really probably more than a hundred plus years old and, and maybe way, way older. I, I don't know. I haven't really studied German proverbs in depth, but she knew hundreds and hundreds of proverbs that talked about the environment. You know, they, they, it's the same kind of proverbs that we have. So if in the morning the sky is red, it means it's going to rain afterwards or the other way around or if the evening, I mean, these are all indigenous knowledges that are uh, contained in the Proverbs, right? This is not Western education in terms of education system. This is colloquial folk knowledge, which if, you, if, if this was Native Americans, you would call it indigenous, right? And, and she was born in 1902. So even in Europe, technically, if you were in the country, you know, in the city may be different, you know, she was obviously in the country. Um, they weren't that far, it, it hasn't been that long until people, uh, since people had a very close relation to the land. Like she knew if on, on this weekend of All Saints or whatever, if it rained, chances are the rest of the winter was going to be rainy or dry or you know what I mean? All those kind of things. They, she In the morning, she could tell you what kind of weather it was going to be. You know, all, I mean, and, and she was just a simple, you know, she wasn't, the, the town sage or anything like that. It was just a simple Oma, simple grandma kind of thing, you know. But she knew all of those things because she grew up in relation with the land, right? And and learned how to take care of the land and the land took care of her. I mean, it's a, it's the same things that we're talking about in Hawaii, but because it's German, we, we don't call it indigenous, right? I mean, it, so I think in those ways, People should go back to their own places. I think you know, and because there's gonna they're gonna find value there, and I think it's important for them to know that they don't have to copy somebody else. You know, uh, we don't need to be somebody else. Every, every one of our traditional cultures took care of the land. I mean, you know it, that those that was the nature of of uh, until industrialization. You know, so we really need to just go back prior to industrialization, um, and in some cases, not that far at all. As I said, if, if you were in the country, and this is, could be in Germany, this could be in the Midwest, it could be all over the world, you know, where, where you really, when you go back and you look and you go, wow, you know, they were connected, you know, they were definitely connected to the land and took good care of the land, you know. Uh, um, so I, I would invite people to, to find their own place um, and, and do more research in that so that, People feel good about themselves, you know. Felt. I think every ethnicity, every whatever you want to call it, should and has a reason to feel proud and to feel good about who their ancestors were. Um, every 
you know, there's in history, there's there's times when stuff didn't go so great, you know, that uh, we should be honest about that. But everybody makes mistakes and people make mistakes too, you know, but it's about recovering and moving forward, not going somewhere else <laughs> and being somebody else to me, you know, no matter what the history of your people is, you know, it's about, and, and whatever shitty things that happened in the past, it's about recovery and moving forward, uh, you know, as that. I really feel that, that we need to preserve everybody's cultures, that the diversity of cultures is going to be our savior, you know, versus the monoculture that we're moving towards more and more and more, you know, that uh, I think is going to destroy us all in the end. If, if we can't stop it, if we can't go back to our roots and, and learning from our ancestors. Mm, that's wonderful. Thank you. That, that was really, what a wonderful answer. Cool. I just have one last thing that I was going to ask. And um, I'll see if this works. But one thought I was having is for people listening to this, I was wondering, if, is there a, a, a practice like a pedagogical practice or an invitation or something that you've you've uh, learned and done with with students that has been a particular powerful practice for having some insights or in relation to some of the things you talked about in the pedagogy of aloha that you'd like to share with people listening that they might want to um, maybe have a go at themselves as an invitation well, um, yeah, there are many, and most of them are really grounded in, in our language, in our culture kind of things. But uh, I would say it's the observation of the environment um, and, and reconnecting to the environment, you know, recreating our uh, relations to the environment, which I said every people had at one point. Um, and, and one of the ways that that can be done is just a spending more time outside period <laughs> you know i think the too much time inside in in schools in houses in in jobs you know and all of that um so a would be to go outside <laughs> and don't run back as soon as it starts to drizzle or snow or whatever stay outside you know for a little uh, amount of time um and observe your environment around you. Get, open your eyes, open your ears, open your heart, open your gut, you know, all, whatever whatever holes you have, and open it all uh, to sense the environment, to, to, to feel the environment, to listen to the environment, to communicate with the environment. And you can say, hey, tree, how's it? How are you doing today? You look handsome. Look at you. Wow. You know, and have those kind of, little conversations with the plants and the animals around you and just start to 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 cultivate that relation because if you look at the the environment the land the aina whatever you want to call it as as a family we look at it as a family member but even if you look at it as a friend right which is not quite as good a friend i think overall you will start to look at what you're doing to your friend um, a little bit differently than if it's just, oh, God, now I'm going to go outside, it's raining, uh, blankety blank, blah, 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 you know, kind of thing. So um, creating and recreating, because it's you've always had that relationship in deeply inside of you, in your DNA, 
there is a relation to the environment. And now it's just a matter of bringing that back out. And that the only way that can happen is to go outside and to experience it and just to spend time. You know, you can go same place, same time to kind of see what the changes are or just spend more time outside, but, but consciously relating and listening, listening, and we're all short of listening skills, <laughs> listening and feeling the environment, you know, spending some time um, doing that on a regular basis uh, and, and cultivating because relations always need to be cultivated, right? It's not we meet each other the first time or we might really hit it off, but if we don't cultivate from there on, it's not going to be a relationship kind of thing. So cultivating that relationship by ongoing interaction and being out there and experiencing it and, and, and growing that relationship. I think um, that if we all did that, we would have a better sense of how our friend <laughs> or our family member is suffering, right? How, how the things that we are doing, right? Because nobody else is doing it. It's not the environment doing it to itself. It's us doing it to the environment. You know, how the things that we as, a, as humans do are detrimental to the health and welfare of our friend or in our case, even our family member. Wonderful. Great, cool. that was such a delight to talk to you, to have this conversation with you, to have you as the first inaugural guest of this uh, podcast series. Uh, it was, it's been a real, real pleasure as always to, to talk to you. So thank you so much for participating. Um, thank you very much. Is it possible for me to close with my traditional close? Is the closing is the same as the opening, but just saying gratitude or mahalo. Yeah. Thank you. Mahaloei, Mahaloei kalehulehu, Mahaloei na, Mahaloei na kupuna, Mahaloei na liyoka holua, Mahaloei na umakua. If you want to follow up on the work of KU, there are multiple resources available in the dedicated podcast website and episode section at the ecoversities.org website. This website also has information about other ecoversities and on the work of the Ecoversities Alliance. This podcast was produced and edited by Jack Haskell. Music included is composed and performed by KU Kahakalao and Nale and by Jacopotamus. <laughs>